Public confidence comes from a willingness to be unflinching in facing up to these claims and being honest about the past, however difficult that may be. It comes from establishing, beyond any doubt, that decision-making on this most critical of issues will be driven only by what needs to be done to protect our children and never by institutional or political concerns. That was Andy Burnham on Monday at a press conference responding to the long-awaited review into child sexual exploitation in Oldham. It's a report that a lot of people have been waiting for, including us, of course, because we've reported so much on this issue. This is the Manchester Weekly from The Mail. Welcome to this week's episode of the Manchester Weekly from the Mail. We're recording it in a slightly DIY setting. Jack and I are sitting on the sofa in the meeting room in Mill HQ in the Royal Exchange. Daryl's away. There's no, uh, there's no major equipment gone into this other than this tiny black microphone in front of us. Listeners, I hope you'll bear with us, but um, in, in, in holiday months when people are off and about, we're going to be doing some episodes like this, which are a little bit more homespun. But we want to talk about this Oldham report. Obviously, um, we want to talk about the transport stories this week, the big HS2 debate that happened in Parliament. We want to talk about the rail strike. Um, we want to talk about a couple of other stories. Jack, should we start with the with the Oldham thing? Yeah. I was in the great Andy Burnham's offices, effectively. Not his office, but I was in the offices of the Greater Manchester Combined Authority. 8 a.m. On, on... Actually, it was 8.30 a.m. on Monday morning. They said you can go in from 7.30. I thought, I don't need... <laughs> three and a half hours to read a report but then I got in there and the damn thing was like the size of a, of a book 200 pages and enormous and suddenly I realized I wouldn't be able to read it all so I have now read it all but at the time you know there was a very good executive summary you could go to the pages that you wanted and it was an interesting read what was the like main thrust the main thrust was that there were very serious failings in Oldham in keeping children safe particularly a long time ago. So this investigation was set up to look into the allegation which was spreading online that there had been a big cover-up by the council of child sexual abuse, uh, mainly by Asian or British Asian street grooming gangs, between 2011 and 2014. But what happened was one particular case of a woman who was referred to as Sophie which happened long before that, in 2006. She was a 12-year-old girl. She was very badly failed by the council and the police. She turned up at a police station having been raped. They turned her away. She was raped again by multiple different men. That was the, the kind of became the most shocking example in this report. And Andy Burnham apologised, and the chief constable apologised, and the head of the council, the new leader, Amanda Chatterton, apologised. So for that case, which kind of was without, outside of the remit of the inquiry which is actually an assurance review, technically, which is what this document was. That was very, very shocking. There were also some real mistakes around, like, giving taxi licences to people who had, um, had sexual, sexual convictions and that kind of thing. There were instances where the council had not properly looked after kids that they knew were vulnerable to CSE. Those were the criticisms. There were half a dozen others, and, and, and they were serious. What I took away from it was that... The big two big-ticket allegations that I think have been spreading online in, in, in Oldham and that have totally 
thrown olden politics into turmoil. On the one hand, the idea that there was mass grooming of white girls by Asian street grooming gangs. And on the other hand, that that was known about by the council. It was covered up. They looked the other way because they were so reliant on Asian votes. This whole conspiracy that I've been writing about with Raj Amir and, 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 and in these stories that we've been doing on the mill, those two allegations were not borne out by this review. And, and the, the authors of the review, one of whom is a sort of child protection expert, one of whom is a former police officer, they were very clear. There was no broad-based cover-up. In, and it actually, in fact, they praised Oldham Council for being quite good at um, proactively spreading messages in the community about CSE, mm. child sexual exploitation. And when I asked them at the press conference, was the number of children who were exposed to CSE or vulnerable to CSE, was that higher than you would find in, like, you know, in other areas? And they said no, it was not atypical. Both the Chief Constable Steve Watt, Stephen Watson, who runs the whole of Greater Manchester Police, said that and uh, Malcolm Newsom, who, who is one of the co-authors of the report. They both said that. When I asked Gary Ridgway, who is the other co-author of the report, one-on-one -on -one that question, he said it was nothing like the scale of Rotherham, where he used to work. Let's play my interview with Gary Ridgway now. Gary, you worked in Cambridge Police for a long time yeah. and then you worked in Rotherham, I believe, yeah. for the council on, on this sort of yeah. stuff. How did what you found in Oldham in this big investigation compare to what you saw as a police officer in Cambridgeshire and also in, a, in Rotherham, which was a place where clearly well documented yeah. that there was a lot of CSE? I was originally seconded as a police officer to Rotherham to work with South Yorkshire Police and the National Crime Agency on their investigation. Mm. And then when I retired, I then moved into Rotherham as an assistant director with the um, to support the multi-agency response. There, there are similarities in as much as it's very tempting for people to default to a very simplistic view around uh, child victims. Mm. And, and it comes back to saying, you know, the child hasn't made a complaint, the child's put themselves at risk, they're making lifestyle choices, mm. they're... Um, uh, they're out of control, they're not listening to advice. Those are the same patterns of cultural perceptions of children that mm. we've, we, you know, we've still got quite a long way to go. Yeah. So in that response, although the scale at Rotherham was huge, and we, we're not claiming in any way the scale at Oldham is anything like Rotherham, but it's just it's the same issues, it's the same cultural norms, it's the same perceptions about children. Um, and there's also an element that child protection services up until even fairly recent years it was all about protecting children from their parents mm. it was all about um, abuse within the home so I still see unfortunately in different parts of the country where I work that police officers and social workers struggle in their mind to understand that um, you can have extremely protective families and parents but their child is still open to the worst type of sexual exploitation mm. it, so it, it, it's that shift in mindset um, to see that as, as we alluded to in the press conference, um, young people's behaviour shouldn't be seen as, you know, if they shoplift or steal or lie or commit crime or damage and stuff, mm -hmm. that can be an indicator of exploitation and abuse. And, and it's, it's, we've got some way to go yet for police officers and social workers to really open their mind to that. Yeah. So the issues is the same as Rotherham, but the scale was completely different. Yeah, if I could ask you one more thing on that, just in terms of the scale. Yeah. 
the, we've done a lot of reporting on our websites called The Mill about online allegations that effectively Oldham was going to be the next Rotherham, it was going to be the next Rochdale. There were not just one grooming gang, but lots and lots of grooming gangs overwhelmingly targeting um, white victims and that there was an enormous cover-up. Now, obviously, you've put the, the idea of a cover-up to bed. Yeah. But in terms of the scale of it, which I don't think was addressed as much in the report or, no. or indeed in the press conference until the very end, how did the scale of what you found in terms of child abuse in Oldham compare to what you experienced in Rotherham? I think Rotherham it operated in plain sight. So you could, if, if we'd have, we've interviewed about 45 people out of the 72 we identified for Oldham. If we interviewed 45 Rotherham professionals back in 2014 15, they'd all be telling you, yeah, we have a massive problem with Asian. Uh, Pakistani gangs yeah. targeting, you know, so the so it was common knowledge. It was almost kind of a, um, yeah, we all know this is happening. And we can't do anything about it. Mm. N- none of our of our individuals that we've spoken to in Oldham have talked in the same way as I experienced professionals of Rotherham talking. Mm. And one of the reasons we're so adamant that we maintain um, anonymity in our report is because we we've had some very candid conversations people still involved still employed still working within uh, that area who are telling us some very blunt uh, and very candid and we need to give them the confidence to talk to us so I'm as confident as I can be that some of the key people we've spoken to, if they'd have said, look, this was another Rotherham, mm. we, we didn't have, we, you know, the, the, everybody knew about this. Everybody knew we couldn't dare, we didn't dare say anything about mm. a Pakistani men because it was seen to be racist and political. And we had that at Rotherham. I was talking to professionals who were saying that. Yeah. I couldn't blow the whistle because I would have, I'd have been accused of being racist. Yeah. We had none of that at Oldham. So my judgment would be, it's apples and pears. Um, but as you quite rightly say, we weren't tasked to assess that kind of scale so we, we couldn't confidently say that but there's nothing that I've come across and I think I would have done to, to suggest it was on the same scale as Rotherham. Can I just ask you a question I asked to Malcolm in the press conference which was um, how did how does the amount of sexual abuse it, like, Rotherham's obviously an extreme example yeah, tells with Rochdale yeah. how does the amount of sexual abuse that was going on in the years that you were looking at in Oldham compared to other areas, either where you've policed or where you've been aware of, of, of what's going on? I, I, I heard your question now. I, I, I would probably go further and say it's comparable. So I've worked oh, probably, in the last few years, I've probably worked in eight different parts of the country. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the kind of, when I've reviewed multi-engine CSE teams, the numbers are the same. If you look at a snapshot, mm. you, you, you'd, you'd expect anything between, you'd, you'd never expect less than 30 or 40 young people be open. And don't forget, it's an assessment process. Yeah. So again, you can't fall in the train, same trip, a, a trip, the same mistake of thinking to yourself, mm. well, um, this child hasn't made a disclosure and therefore isn't, uh, this is about assessing what's happening around this child and whether they're at risk. So, you know, the CSE teams I go to, I'd normally expect 30, 40, anything up to sort of 80, 90, 100. Mm. That's what I normally see. And and, in the years that you looked at with this, you were looking at numbers depending on the year in the 30s and 40s. Yes, I think think the the slight difference with Oldham was, and we allude to it at one point, which was the... The trage- one of the tragedies of Sophie's case mm. was there's clearly a detective inspector said, "Look, we're being overwhelmed, mm. and, and we're going to push it back to untrained generic detectives." The problem with that, of course, it, you know, this is this is serious business. Mm. You know, it's not about managing your resources; it's about doing the right thing for children. So, 
those a culture that allows you know a middle manager to say we're not long, we're no longer taking on mm. you know multiple rapes of a twelve year old child because we haven't the resources mm. and just to push that away that's unhealthy yeah. and, and 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 that and that for me if it had been picked up properly by messenger and properly considered multi ancient meetings and a thorough investigation. Um, I think that would have saved Sophie and all, so much heartache over the years. And just to follow up something that Charlotte asked in the press conference about Raja Mir, this online yeah. activist who's been spreading yeah. this idea that there is a cover-up, which you have you have comprehensively refuted. He has said repeatedly in his online broadcast mm. that he has a dossier of information about CSE mm. in Oldham that he is willing to hand over to investigators mm. to the police. So far, he seems to have not done that. Did you try and get that dossier from him? Did you oh, see any evidence that it even exists? Um, we, we, uh, we reached out to him, and mm. we've put his reply, as you've seen in our report. Yeah. Um, I, I think I have to be quite strong in saying this is a serious business. This is not theatre. We can't uh, engage with vocal people, even if there's some element of... Um, reliability about them. We can't do that in a public forum talking about this this business. It it would be wholly inappropriate. And I, so that that caused uh, I, I question his judgment on um, on having made that response to us. On and that's because he his response his um, he said my evidence has to be given live broadcast on on the internet. And, and you can imagine um, being asked about maybe some counsellors or offenders or having um, perpetrators or having um, victims mentioned in that yeah. discussion um, which which we've all talked about in our confidential, you know, two and a half, three, three and a half hours is our general interview. So we have those conversations. Um, you can imagine saying that a public uh, mm. forum and some victim hearing her name she, it would be devastating. It shows, uh, for me it shows a complete lack of understanding about the impact on victims. You know, we pulled our ten cases um, because we were concerned about the impact on some of the vi victims who fed back to us. Uh, the last thing I'd want to do here is sit and, um, and, and you know, out a victim um, who, who wasn't comfortable with that. And, and I think that, that, that process to me showed um, a huge lack of understanding about what it actually means for victims. In terms of the dossier, I'd heard about the dossier, mm. um, and I, I'm not confident in, in, the, in giving you able, but I think we had suggested that if he had material he would be shared, would be shared with us some of the key stuff that he referred to we had seen because we managed to get that from the sources but he didn't give you a dossier we, he didn't give us a dossier and we would have readily accepted one of him that was Gary Ridgway, a former senior police officer in Cambridgeshire who also worked for Rotherham Council and the co-author of this um, assurance review into CSE in Oldham and what's quite interesting is of course our we led our briefing with this on Monday and your main kind of point there was that this cover-up that had caused so much sort of political angst in the borough mm. wasn't borne out by the report and you got quite a lot of flack on Twitter mm. from various people. Do you think this is going to make people believe even more fervently in that kind of close the loop backwards way or do you think now this will actually sort of blow a hole in it? Yeah, it's a good question because I think one dynamic that you observe with conspiracy theories is that when people who are presented with evidence to the contrary, the true believers actually end up believing more, not less, because they've put so much pride into it. My sense from seeing all the tweets is that people still want to believe that there was mass, mass grooming, Rotherham-style, Rochdale-style grooming of white girls by Asian gangs. I think that's very clear. I was getting tweets like, it hasn't come out here, but it will come out. The day is coming. Someone, One person said the clock is ticking, you know, with a, a, a meme of a... 
of a, of a salt, um, one, of the, one of those sort of salt timers, actually, which doesn't, isn't a ticking clock, but, you know. Like an egg timer. An egg timer, oh. an egg timer. Um, the, talk, the clock is ticking is the point that she was trying to make. And I sort of said to her, well, when is it going to come out? If it's not going to come out here? And she basically said, look, we don't trust this review. So I think appealing to middle ground people who just wanted to know whether there was any grooming or whether there was this kind of Rotherham-style grooming, it might work for that. I think for the true believers who've been following Rajamir, who've invested so much of their pride and their energy and their time, and actually for a lot of them, their money, contributing to his funds all the time. I think for those kind of people, I don't think this review is going to do much, but it'd be really interesting in the months ahead to see how Rajamir sort of reacts to this and how his following um, either goes up or down after this. Mm. Yesterday, I went to an event at the Manchester Art Gallery. I was the only one wearing shorts. Everyone else was wearing uh, suits or at least sort of um, shirts and ties. And it was an event put on by the Institute of Government, think tank based in London, who were very interested in questions of devolution and that kind of thing. They had a new report out this week. Um, about effectively the, where devolution goes next, which other powers, which other bits of money can go towards um, Greater Manchester, Liverpool City region, South Yorkshire, that kind of thing. And the interesting thing about it was that Andy Burnham was being asked by a senior fellow at this think tank, what would you like to get? And the reason that's really relevant is that Andy Burnham is about to start negotiating this new deal. So there's a, it's called a trailblazer deal. The West Midlands and Greater Manchester have been given effectively the option to try and get some more powers and, and, and money off the government. Quite what that looks like is probably going to come down to these negotiations. But Andy Burnham said it's going to start next month and we are looking for more influence um, more powers when it comes to skills, more of a budget when it comes to skills. So not just doing adult skills, but doing some, some skills for younger people as well. And he talked about sort of the, some of the benefits of bringing these kind of powers into Greater Manchester. Like one example he gave that I thought was quite interesting. He said, because they devolved more health powers to us originally, Greater Manchester has more health devolution than, than any other region. He said, we've been able to link health up with housing better we've been able to link it up with school attendance better we've kind of on the ground we've been able to get everyone around the table and kind of coordinate the systems better than if it was all organized by Whitehall I thought it was an interesting argument for devolution but one of the sort of downsides of of, of more powers coming here and it, it probably doesn't overwhelm the other reasons but it was interesting is we talked to Akash Pound who was the senior fellow who was interviewing him Akash came into the office, didn't he? Or was it on Tuesday? Or maybe it was Monday. And we chatted to him a bit. And you were chatting to him a bit about like, accountability and, and, and that kind of thing, weren't you? Yeah, yeah. So we've covered many, many times the sort of lack of attendance to scrutiny meetings, particularly in our piece with regard to um, health scrutiny meetings. And I think what was in that report from the Institute for Government was making, trying to incentivise councillors to go to these scrutiny meetings, which at the minute are sort of unpaid. They don't decide which scrutiny meeting they join. They just sort of uh, allocated something where they just have to turn up. Yeah. doesn't matter if you are a doctor or not. You could be a lawyer with no prior knowledge of how the healthcare system works. And you just get get given a huge brief and have to sit there and try and scrutinise this. And just to be clear, we're talking about Greater Manchester level scrutiny committees. The people who are supposed to effectively hold Greater Manchester to account rather than just the councils. Yeah, and and yeah. it's it's often made up of councillors, isn't it? Yes, exactly. 
Um, and as you say, in our health reporting, we found that some a lot of these meetings were poorly attended, mm. that a lot of people didn't really know how. One one person on, on the health scrutiny committee said, I don't really know how to scrutinise them. I don't really have the numbers at my disposal. I don't have enough time to prepare for it. Mm. So that seemed like a real like hole in the system. And Akash and the Institute for Government have written this new report about how to improve scrutiny. Because if you're going to hand over more powers and money to Greater Manchester, Liverpool City region, West Midlands, there needs to be better scrutiny as well. So that was that, that was one thing that we talked to him about. Um, I asked Akash about some of these questions when he came into the office. Um, let's listen to that. Your new report, How Metro Mayors Can Help Level Up England, uh, came out this week. A major new report um, from the Institute of Government um, in which you're talking about sort of where devolution can go next in the country. What are the big things that you'd like to see happen in devolution? So, um, I mean, what we've said is that devolution so far to Metro mayors like Andy Burnham and Steve Rotherham and Andy Streets and so on has started to add value to, to, to the regions that these these mayors um, represent. You know, a, a mayor like Andy Burnham has clearly got a high profile, which he's able to use for the benefits of Greater Manchester, he does have that authority to to convene and coordinate and, and set the agenda at the local level. But when you drill down into the actual powers and the funding model, crucially for Metro mayors, what we concluded is it's very much an, an incomplete settlement. We, we have a situation, situation where the powers devolved are, are quite fragmented. Mayors are responsible for parts of, say, the skills system, part of the local transport system. To some extent, they have a role over things like housing and infrastructure and so on. But we don't have that sort of coherent, broad sphere of devolved autonomy that you see in certainly in Scotland and Wales and indeed internationally um, in federal systems and so on. Um, and for a lot of things, Ultimately, the mayor is still quite powerless unless they can get the agreement from central government to fund specific projects and also from other local leaders who, who still wield a lot of power on the combined authority. So in, in your report, you're, you're talking about filling in the gaps of that sort of baby devolution settlement that we've got at the moment. You talk about uh, potentially devolving full responsibility for functions like adult skills, uh, local transport, uh, green infrastructure and getting away from a system where mayors have to get sort of a hundred different funding streams from the government to cover different things and get a more flexible pot of funding like Scotland would, might get so that it can be spent on, on what the metro mayors want to prioritise. Is that is that right? Yeah, that's absolutely it. I mean, I think a mature devolution settlement would be one in which we do identify certain functions and those ones you mentioned, skills, transport, infrastructure, those are really some of the key ones where it absolutely makes most sense for these functions to be to be managed and to be controlled at this regional level. You know, they're not things that Whitehall has the local knowledge to act. So we're talking about when Whitehall uh, officials are making decisions about which leisure centre should be upgraded or which theatre should have a new roof or that kind of thing? Yeah, I think when it comes to decisions about local infrastructure, local economic development, it absolutely makes sense for, for local decision makers to be in the lead. But if, you, if you're looking at the, the transport system, housing, skills systems, things like that, 
those are things that operate at a at a regional scale so individual local authorities aren't the right level either um and that's why you know metro mayors have been established to to fill that gap at the intermediate scale but they the government hasn't yet had the courage of its convictions to really empower them to to join up um, those different functions and to to really drive the economic growth of their regions so will improving the system and empowering metro mayors like andy burnham it obviously will involve taking some powers from Whitehall and some funding streams. Will it also mean taking some powers from local councils? Because at the moment, one of the problems is if you're a metro mayor, you can't really do anything unless all the council leaders in your metro region agree, like Greater Manchester or the Liverpool City region. That obviously holds you back, like we saw with the Greater Manchester Spatial Framework. One council didn't get on board. That threw the whole plan into into chaos. It had to be redrawn, etc., etc. So, is part of this we actually need to empower them by taking powers off councils as well as taking powers off Whitehall? I personally think, in the end, that's probably the direction this will move in. Mm. But I don't think that's something that should be implo- um, imposed on on local places. I mean, we've seen it in some parts of the country where government has gone in twisted arms pretty heavily basically forced places to accept a mayoral model places to be honest like Cambridgeshire and Peterborough where there really isn't much local support for the model the geography of the devolution doesn't make much sense and we've seen a lot of tension and dysfunction I think as a result so you really do have to work with the grain of local politics you have to build and it can take time, the consensus to make devolution work. But yeah, I think in the end, we, we do probably want to see a system where mayors have a bit more freedom of, of, of action and are able to actually take some of these difficult decisions. That was Akash Pound, who's a senior fellow at the Institute of Government. Um, interesting guy and probably someone we're going to hear from again on the podcast. Jack. Let's talk about another sort of policy area while mm. we're in the policy space. HS2 yes. is in the news again because Parliament is debating how it gets implemented effectively, the yeah, next bit, right. the bit that comes to Manchester. What's been going on? What are they talking about? That? So it had its second parliamentary hearing on Monday mm. and that went through with flying colours really I think if I remember correctly you have 205 eyes to six no's but nevertheless the problem with this latest bill or the problem for a lot of Greater Manchester councillors and Greater Manchester MPs mm. was we you will have remembered that the Gorbon Spur was scrapped mm. so that would have carved through bits of South Manchester going up to Scotland mm. that was taken out which was a big win for people like Graham Brady who wanted it taken out in the first place. But what is also remaining in is the overground station at Piccadilly, which caused a lot of problems generally. I find it quite interesting because these same councillors, these same MPs, you know, I think it's James Gwynn from Denton and Reddish. He, at once, they're in a odd position in that they at once criticise the bill but they also have to vote for it because they have to accept that this is still a net positive for Manchester and even though you'll have this overground station it's called you know HS2 on stilts Mm. and HS2 on the cheap Mm. and it'll sort of 
cut out large sort of swathes of Manchester. So is the idea that if the station is overground, then the trains will also be overground and therefore they will be on stilts. And that is the thing that Andy Burnham and Bev Craig, the leader of Manchester City Council, are so angry about. Yeah, I think Bev Craig, if I remember correctly at the time, was talking about thousands of jobs that will be lost on that land that could have been used to build other things, yeah. but instead is now going to have a, you know, a train track going over it. The government's argument is that the underground option would take like seven years longer to build, would be far more expensive. Four and a half billion was the number, isn't it? Yeah, but that's been disputed by quite a lot of people. It would have, they had an odd terminology. They said there would there'd be 350,000 more HGV, quote unquote, movements, mm. which just means a hell of a lot more HGVs having to move in and out of Manchester. Because of the digging. Because of the digging and all that sort of mm. thing. And, and moving all of that land out of the ground and out of the city. Mm. So yeah, there's a government's argument that you can get it sooner and cheaper if you're overground. And the MEN's done a big campaign about this. They're, they're backing the Manchester's position. I mean, look, I don't know enough about railways and stuff to know like what the merits of this argument, which it, it definitely feels like Manchester has been arguing for an underground HSD station for ages. Mm. Like it was a big Richard Lee's priority. Yeah. Clearly, they're currently not winning that argument. I suspect in, unless they get a Labour government they've pro- probably lost the argument with yeah. with this one. I mean, there are loads of trains that obviously do go over, you know, when you go down in Castlefield, you see trains going over viaducts and in the air and stuff. I'm not a huge expert. It wouldn't be the first time a train can't go underground, no, right? No. Most of them most of them are overground. Um, but it's a definitely an interesting one. We will keep an eye on it. Now, Jack, another transport story, which I haven't been affected by because I have a 15-minute walk to work, but some people... Lots of people commute by train and lots of people have been hit by the chaos this week. What's the kind of local impact of that been? Well, obviously, I think Piccadilly was, because of the national rail strikes, Piccadilly was running at 20% capacity and I think it was a, it was a similar picture at Victoria. So that's making things a lot harder for people to arrange getting into work. It means more people on the road. The National Rail Inquiries website crashed uh, yesterday on the first day of the strike because so many people were trying to rearrange how they were going to get into work. Interestingly, politically, most MPs in Manchester come out in support of the strikes. I think Andy Burns says something like, I'll never be the kind of politician that criticises someone fighting over their own income. Mm. Um, the MEN today ran a piece about what do you know people passing in and out of train stations doing actual Mancunians, mm. they support the strikes too. Um, but, I mean, it's similar. It's a similar picture to the rest of the country. It's very difficult to get into work by train. People are having to find different options to get into the city. And, you know, it's only been the first day yesterday. We'll have to see if that kind of general support carries on as the strikes go forward. Yeah. Now, before we move on to the next story, I just want to issue a little clarification and apology for a mistake we made a few weeks ago. You might remember we had a really interesting conversation with the pollster Chris Curtis, who had made some really interesting claims about his experiences at the pollster YouGov during the 2017 elections. I made a slight slip-up in one of my questions. I suggested that... He had claimed, Chris had claimed, that Conservative Party figures had put pressure on YouGov not to release certain polls or to reinterpret the results, which is not actually what he claimed. So we've taken that bit out of the clip, and I apologise to YouGov for that slip-up. Since then, since we spoke to Chris, he's put out some tweets that say effectively, I'm going to quote a bit of them, while he he believed at the time that the, this, this poll that was favourable to Jeremy Corbyn hadn't been released to because, because it was too positive to Labour... In fact, he now accepts that that wasn't the reason why. Um, he accepts Hugo's position that, in fact, the results were pulled because of concerns 
other members of the team had about the methodology. He says, I believe then, I believe then, as I do now, that the methodology was acceptable. But he does later say in his thread, um, as he sought to clarify on Twitter as well, that um, he didn't intend to allege that Nadim Sahawi, who is now a, a senior Conservative minister, played any role in this decision. I'm happy to clarify the position and I apologise to you guys for any confusion caused. So I just wanted to clarify that and, and put that on the record so that we haven't um, said something on, on the podcast that was, um, that, that's kind of uh, created uh, the wrong impression about how YouGov handled that poll. Now, as many listeners will know, this week we've been celebrating the second birthday of the mill this week we had our mill members event to celebrate the birthday and there were some great moments on stage where jack was talking to his journalism professor pete murray who is a former bbc journalist and he's a professor at mmu he teaches journalism at mmu and pete was asking jack questions about his story about manor the michelin star restaurant um, we're going to play you a clip of when Jack is t- talking about reporting on details like that famous story of the eel being being chopped up in the kitchen, how he dealt with different sources, how he asked them questions in a not leading way. The first voice you'll hear is Pete Murray. This is from the Mill members event. Now, you, you had a lot of people, you said, contacting you, contacting mm. you both. Um, how did you start to kind of corroborate the stories because we were talking earlier on and you were getting quite different stories from different people about yeah, what was going on. That was like the main sort of bulk of the report and I think was trying to find like the through lines in everyone's story. So it was like one person could tell you one thing and then you'd ring someone else and they'd tell you something similar and you'd be kind of like gnawing in the back of your head because you'd be like, are they telling me the same story that that person has, tell, has just told me, or are they just telling me a really similar story because this sort of thing happened all the time? So what you had to start doing, so like with the eel bit where he decapitated an eel, which was like a pretty standout story. I was, would have been shocked if he did that twice. I heard that story once, and I was like, how do I get other people to talk about that in a way that isn't me just leading them on to agree that it happened? So like I didn't want to be like, do you remember when he decapitated an eel? Because then someone could just be like, uh, yeah. So what I started doing was being like, do you remember anything about animals? <laughs> Like, anything about anything with a pulse in the kitchen. Like, being really vague. And then people would be like, what was worse was that some people would say the eel thing, and then someone else would be like, oh, you mean the crab thing? I was like, well, there was a crab thing, and then there'd be a whole thing about crabs. But then, yeah, after a while, people would start backing each other up. But it was important because, obviously, if you read the piece, Simon's main gripe was that it was like... um, all these guys are colluding. They're all clearly in a big group chat and all agreeing what to tell you. They're trying to string you along. And that was a genuine worry because at the end of the day, it was very probable that this was just a bunch of bitter people who wanted to take down the biggest chef in Manchester. So being sure that we weren't leading anyone on was like something that I was trying to keep on top of. We actually ended up finding out that it was like the complete opposite. We were like interviewing people who didn't really even like each other that much and hadn't spoken to each other in like years. Like some one interviewee wouldn't even speak to me because I'd spoken to someone they worked with so Yoshi had to interview them. So it was like that was just like completely not true. But yeah the key thing was finding where everyone's stories aligned. That was what you missed at our members event. Now Jack before we sign off we're going to do our recommendations for things to do this weekend. Obviously, it's made a little bit complicated because there's a huge train strike. So yes. let's try and recommend things that people can do um, within the city centre. My one is I wandered into the Soul Hay Gallery in, in Castlefield the other day. 
and they had a really nice show in there, very sort of understated modernist painting show called Legacy. And it's about paintings that were done in the post-war period. I couldn't remember, if you ask me now, the name of any of the artists, but I don't think that's the most important thing. It's like a real nice mid-century painting show. Mm. And one of the curators was there, a lovely guy, and and chatted to me about it. And he'll probably be there when you go. And actually, some of his paintings were in there as well. So that's my my recommendation. And you don't need to get a train to, to, to go to it. Uh, I recommend that you eat anywhere in Chinatown, really, to support the area. I don't know if you saw, but they had a rather nasty bout of sort of vandalism at the pagoda. Um, What happened? uh, It just got smashed up. And two, well, in total, four original carvings that were donated by China to Manchester were stolen. Two have been recovered. GMP, at this exact moment that we're recording this, are appealing for information on the other two. So if you have any information about that, please Mm. do share it. Mm. But also go and eat anywhere in Chinatown. I would recommend Happy Seasons, which has been going for absolutely years. I don't know exactly how many, but it was one of the kind of real OGs in Chinatown. What does OG mean for our older listeners? Original. Original. Well, actually, the actual definition is original gangster but we'll say it's original (laughs) but uh happy seasons is great they do traditional char siu pork and really nice people that own it it's one of those classic chinese restaurants huge menu love that place perfect go to chinatown support them after that attack horrible horrible attack and a bit of vandalism but um it's a nice idea to go and eat out there and show your solidarity Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode of the Manchester Weekly from the Mail. If you enjoy this podcast, we would love you to go on iTunes. It's not called iTunes anymore. It's called Apple Apple Podcasts. Podcasts. Go on Apple Podcasts, go on Spotify, whatever your podcast app is, and leave us a a rating, a review. We watch them every week, Mm. and they really help us. I think they help us to get seen by other people because Spotify will recommend it more if it's got good ratings and that kind of thing. And if you have any friends who listen to the podcast, we'd love you to share it. We've really been taking off in the past few weeks. We've got higher and higher numbers. Pretty much every time we put out a an episode it's a, it's a record so please do that coming up this weekend we have a special interview with the leader of Manchester City Council Bev Craig she's been doing the job since December it's the first time I've spoken to her I went to her council office with Danny Danny took a portrait and I had a good amount of time with her the theme of the interview is about housing because that seems to be the big kind of policy area that she's focusing on. There have been housing strategy, you've had this this fair rent, um, living rent um, announcement, you've had landlord licensing. So it's a really interesting interview, only about 25 minutes long or something on tape that we did, but we're going to put that out in our podcast on Sunday, and you're also going to be able to read an, an interview with Bev Craig either on the weekend or sometime next week. So that's what's coming up on Sunday. Thank you for listening, and we will see you this weekend. <laughs>